Welcome everyone to our latest episode of the Change Leaders podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Buddy Teaster, who is the CEO of a not-for-profit doing wonderful work called Souls for Souls. I would like to welcome Buddy Teaster. We are so excited and so happy that you're with us today. Welcome to the Change Leaders podcast. Well, sure, I'm very excited about the opportunity to talk with you. So really looking forward to the conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about the wonderful work Souls for Souls is doing, your personal background, and how you became the CEO? I might answer those much in kind of reverse order almost. I've been the CEO at Souls for Souls for about eight years now. I came in October of 2012. The reason there was an opportunity here was the organization was in pretty bad shape. It been founded in 2006, grown very fast, but looking back, things were really out of whack. Hmm. And the organization was losing a lot of money. The board, I think for some significant period of time, was not doing its job of holding the management team accountable. And we got some very bad press here in Nashville hmm. and nationally. And a lot of our corporate partners were not interested in working with us because of that. And the internal team was demoralized. So on all the kind of things that you care about, the team, outside reputation and relationships, the financial situation and governance, bad. So that's that's why they were looking for a CEO. That's how I got to Souls for Souls. I didn't know anything about the organization. I was living in Dallas. I didn't know Nashville really at all. Hmm. So the thing that attracted me to go now to your next question about the personal background, I had this mix of not-for-profit and for-profit experience. Mm-hmm. I have an MBA in arts administration. So that was another way of my another part of my life kind of combined business and the not-for-profit sector. Hmm. And what I felt and still believe very much today is those things all really come together at Souls for Souls. We operate a big part of what we do like a business and it is super mission driven. And hmm. this approach that Souls for Souls had really kind of pioneered of using Business as a tool to help alleviate poverty seemed super important to me. And in spite of all the kind of wreckage at the time, there was an incredibly great idea at the center of that. And to answer the first part of your question now is the work that we do, which is we really think about souls for souls creates opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that could be along a lot of dimensions. The, the most obvious one is that we, by collecting shoes and clothes, new and used all around the world, some of that we give away for free and we help pe- people with an opportunity to maybe have a pair of shoes to go to school, to avoid injury or disease, to be able to go to work. And those people need help in the short term. So there's this short term opportunity that people need help right now and shoes are a p- can often be a part of that. Longer term, all the used shoes that we collect and some of the new shoes and clothes that we collect, we sell to people in the developing world primarily. And they resell it. It could be to create a small business, create a job. And what we see time after time is that is a really powerful way for people to disrupt the cycle of poverty mm. for generations. Not all the time, not every person, but it, it happens enough that we really believe that this engine can really make a difference in a lot of the, in a lot of the world. So when we think about that's one dimension of opportunity, but it's also an opportunity for people like you and me to Take stuff that we are finished with, what's in our closet that maybe doesn't fit or mm-hmm. so we're tired of it. I mean, there are all these reasons that we don't wear most of the stuff that's in our closet. It's an opportunity to turn that into a tangible benefit for others. It could be turned into housing, education, stable food supply, lots of things that it is almost like magic, really, to think that was those pair of shoes have been in my closet for two years. You give it to Souls for Souls, we give it to someone in Haiti or Honduras and they sell it and that could make a, a tangible, immediate difference in their lives. That's awesome. And then the last opportunity is for people to help the environment, whether that's a company with an excess inventory or that stuff in our closets. Most of it, most of it winds up in the trash. 85% of it still goes into landfills. Mm. And more and more, we recognize why that's terrible. So you combine the opportunity to create an income for somebody in the place where it's hard to do that and a good thing for the planet. That's where it all kind of comes together. Would you say that's kind of your nonprofit's unique value proposition and kind of what differentiates your impact and mission from other nonprofits? Is, is you, there, there's almost that entrepreneurial aspect 
and it seems like there's this environmental aspect as well. Yeah, like I think I think a lot of the more successful forward thinking not for profits are moving to some sort of entrepreneurial model hmm. in that it and in the dimension of both how they run their own business as well as how they help people learn, think, do, grow, whether that's agriculture or textiles or what we're doing. I think, you know, it's not a huge number, but it's even in the time I've been at Souls for Souls, there's more of that happening. I don't, I don't want to single us out as something special. I think we have really leaned hard into the idea that shoes and clothes are a powerful engine. And so that's probably unique to us. Hmm. But I also think there are phenomenal other not-for-profit organizations that are really focused on a similar kind of, at least on one part of our mission, and that is helping people find a sustainable, in every sense of the word, way to create an income that they can say it a little differently. One of the things that we have learned is a lot of the not-for-profits and NGOs around the world have great intentions. And so that shows up as donating shoes, clothes, food, water, Good on the list, right? It's a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But often what happens is that's not always what that community needs or doesn't need it in that way. Mm-hmm. And there are unintended consequences to show up with lots of free stuff. This sort of market-based approach means that like we only show up and people only buy from us if they want it, right? There's no, mm-hmm. there's not this weird power imbalance where they have to take it because we said it's for free. And that keeps everybody more honest and more equal. And that is really powerful. I heard that happening with with Tom's shoes where there was some unintended consequences of their kind of you buy one pair and then, you know, they give away a free pair. And so it seems like, you know, Tom's had to kind of recalibrate some of that approach and how they were they were thinking about that. But, yeah, that's 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 a fantastic point there. Yeah, I think Tom's a great example because they've done a lot of things right. They've donated shoes to us in the past and. Um, you know, they've given a lot of free shoes away. And I mean, I think the, the, to their credit, I know people love to take a whack at them every now and then, but they did listen, right? They said, okay, wait a minute. Let's manufacture shoes in these, in these places. Let's, let's do more than just give shoes away. How do we wrap other things around it? Maybe stuff around foot health as an example. So I, I do think, look, it's hard to get it right. No, no mm-hmm. matter what. Sure. Um, and there are people who don't listen and for sure. That's the case uh, with for-profit and not-for-profit businesses. Mm-hmm. The good ones that listen and, and learn, and I think uh, I, I know that's been true for us, that we're like, oh, that didn't work <laughs> like we thought. And I think Tom's is also a, a pretty good case study of how how they can adapt and have more of an impact, even when they thought their intentions were good. So I think it may be difficult for some of our listeners to fully appreciate the dire straits of other populations around the world. Can you tell me a bit about Marie Ange and how Souls for Souls helped ignite her business? Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite experiences at Souls for Souls. So when we uh, we've been working in Haiti for a while, really after the earthquake in 2010, but we hadn't quite figured out the model yet. A lot of the shoes that we sold went through kind of a more for-profit channel, and there wasn't that much direct impact. And we started working in Haiti. We're like, this doesn't seem to be getting the benefit to the people we say we're here to help and, and partner with. So how do we cut out the middleman? That was that was really kind of the question. And, and make it so that the woman selling the shoes in a market, she gets to keep most of that final sales price, and it's a meaningful amount of money. So Maria Ange was one of the first women we met. We partnered with a group in Haiti called the Haitian American Caucus. These women had borrowed money. They maybe they were for maybe for other kind of education things like English as a second language, but they also had a microcredit program. So Sam, who runs HAC, said, "I want you to meet a few of these women." Something that like we would barely imagine was kind of Maria Ange's story. We met Maria Ange at a critical time for her, and it was the beginning of the process for us. And what we found is our assumptions about how much margin was getting taken by these middlemen in the process was right. So I'll just quickly give you kind of sample math. This is pretty close. The market price is the market price, right? So mm-hmm. she's $10 in the market was about what she could get for most of her shoes. But because she was such a small buyer, she could only access the after it's been picked over, right? 
so many hands have touched it before she can. Mm. And somebody does, the price goes up, right? So yep. let, let's say you, you donate your shoes to a thrift store here in the U.S. They try to sell in the thrift store. If it doesn't go there, it goes to the outlet store. Then it goes to maybe a broker in Miami. Then it goes to a broker in Port-au-Prince. And then maybe one more broker to her local market. So any point along there, somebody's like, oh, these are the best ones. I'll take them and I'll sell the worst stuff and, mm. and raise the price. So by the time it gets to Maria and she's got a lousy product that a lot of other people like her have, and she's paying paying $8 a pair, right? So she's paying a $2 margin, almost nothing. And she doesn't have anything that's differentiated. So now we partner with Asian American Caucus and we say, all right, how about if we do this? We sell the shoes to HAC for a dollar a pound. It's right from your closet to her, right? So nobody stepped on it. Nobody's taken out the good stuff. There's, there, you know, there's a lot of women's fashion, but there might also be a pair of branded athletic shoes that are super valuable. So we sell to Sam for a dollar. He's got another dollar in transportation and taxes. So his cost is two. He sells, he sells it to four to Marie Ange. He has now money to put into his school, his microcredit program, his literacy programs. Hmm. So that's an earned income stream for him, which is really important. And Marie Ange still getting $10 in the market, but now her, she's making $6, right? Her income tripled just by changing that supply chain. Oh, wow. Be working incredibly hard. She's already a great negotiator. So imagine if your income tripled, like it would not take long for your life to be different. And that's exactly what happened with Riage. She mm. went from that sort of tenuous, just barely holding on. 18 months, she bought land. So she owned that and nobody was going to take it from her. And as a woman, that's rare in Haiti. Mm. Six months after that, she had a house. Wow. So she went from, I don't know where I'm going to live two years later. All eight of her immediate family, kids and grandkids, are living in a place with a roof and concrete walls. The first time I got to go into her house, I mean, it was mind-blowing. You would have thought you were walking into a mansion. But her pride, she did it. <laughs> she owned it. It was, an, it was an amazing moment. And so whenever I think about how this model works, she is exactly who comes to mind because it was her work coupled with a better supply chain and business model and shoes are an incredibly profitable engine and all that came together for her. That's so cool. When you are looking to transform a large scale problem and one person at a time, what does this success look like? How do you gauge success? What metrics are, are you using to say, yeah, we did better than, than last year? Yeah, that is a great question. And it took us a while to, to get to the one that we have now. So when we, when we, when I first came, we didn't have any metrics. We were mainly trying to fix the business so that we had an organization to do what we said we were doing. But as we got ship righted, we said, well, we asked that question. How are we going to track it? And so we did, I think, what a lot of organizations would do. How many jobs are we creating? How much do people's incomes go up, et cetera? And we found out a couple of things, three really important ones. One is it didn't capture everything that we did. So there was, there is some value to shoes being given away for free. It's not zero. So if you just counted jobs and money, that all was left off the table. Hmm. Two, it's hard to do, right? A lot of the folks that we're dealing with aren't literate. Maybe they have limited access to technology. And so figuring out how to, how to consistently collect the data was hard. Hmm. Third part was it set up this weird dynamic in many cases where if the stay in Haiti, every time the shoes come in, the price is negotiated every time. And so there was a lot of fear that if they were honest with us, this was their fear, that they were, if they were honest with us, we would use the fact that they were making a lot of money to negotiate harder with them. Like mm. we would, it would cost them money to tell us the truth. Oh, or like, interesting. So there was, there was no way we were ready to get the quote right data. And it's a little humiliating. Like you ask people all these questions about their income and you don't show, you don't give up anything of your own. It was weird. Sure. But we said, this is wrong. So we went back to the drawing board and we ended up with something that is it's probably relevant to us. You know, I, we're doing some work now to try to create more of a framework and validate it against some other benchmarks. But we came up with this thing called economic impact, which is there are three things that we do with shoes and clothes. We give them away for free. We sell them in this model like I just described with Marie Ange. We do that in six or seven countries around the world. And there's some stuff for a variety of reasons that we just sell to this for-profit channel. Each of those have very different values for the people on the receiving end. And so 
we said, we looked across all these markets. We did our research, like what is, what are people getting for these shoes? What are the costs? So we sort of backed into this number we call economic impact. And we said, all right, here's where we are. Here's the, here's the model. We want to be at a billion dollars in economic impact by 2030. And then we have a, you know, we have a plan to get from where we are to there. Hmm. It involves collecting more shoes and clothes and directing more and more of our product into the direct microenterprise into the free so that that it's already the majority of what we're doing, but we need to make it even more so. And so that drives us every day. It's one of the things I love about it, Moshi, is that it is a daily tool. This isn't some like billion dollars in 2030. And then you look at it once a year and say, how are we doing? <laughs> we use that every day because it helps us make decisions where there's tension between we have to have money to operate. We have to get paid by in a certain amount of time and we have to be true to our mission. And we have to support these entrepreneurs who count on us for their livelihoods. And those things can and sometimes be in direct conflict. Mm. And I think having that metric allows us to have more than just, is it profitable or not? Is it good or not? And then make better decisions. That's great. Yeah, I, th- I think that's something that a lot of organizations run into where they, they'll have these metrics or strategic plans. You know, they'll pull them out. They'll dust them off, you know, once six months or once a year. And then by that time, it's too late to recalibrate if you need to. Really smart on on your organization's part. So how how do you get potential donors to to care about what you're doing and 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 buy in both literally and figuratively? Is there a particular communication method or forum that works better than others? What what does that look like? It is interesting because. I think one of the things that is helpful in our model is that people can donate product, not just money, right? So mm. it's a, people think about that differently. They're willing to talk to other people about that in a way like if I ask you, once you, hey, would you donate a hundred dollars and can you go out and ask five other people for that? That's really awkward and hard. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If I said to you, yeah. hey, why don't you donate 10 pairs of shoes and ask five neighbors for 10 pairs of shoes? You'd be like, that's simple. I can do that. Yeah. One thing is just to is to is to change the currency from cash to product. So mm-hmm. that's one thing, and people people understand that they like I don't I don't need this stuff. I was going to get rid of it anyway. This is better. So that is a it's hard to reach all those folks, but the message is pretty clear. Yeah. On the corporate side, it's a little harder because some companies just say, "Hey, the the warehouse is full, or this stuff is past its usable life in the on a." shelf somewhere in the store, just come and get it. It's not very, it's very transactional. Hmm. But as we go up the chain and say, look, we can help you do that. We can make sure that the product doesn't go in places that you don't want it to so you can protect your brand, which is super important for us to, to be aware of that. But also then we can bring these stories like, what are you doing with your product back into your employees, to your customers? And so we don't have to quite sell them on that. Like they see, hey, we gave this stuff and this happened. This woman has a house. These kids can now go to school. These people are being helped after a natural disaster. And they are dying for those kind of stories to come back and at mm. least tell their employees. So that's one. The second thing, which is not possible right now, but it has historically been for Souls for Souls, a really important component of, of how we do that is come and see it. Travel with us. So we we do trips. You know, sometimes it, it, like we took Adidas a few years ago to Haiti. Hmm. It was, it was, it was five people. We spent a couple of days looking and talking and interacting with the folks there in this program. And Adidas came back and said, look, anything that we are not contractually obligated to sell, we're going to put in the Souls for Souls channel. Oh, wow. I, there is no better buy-in than people being there. And I, that's a big commitment, you know, time and money and all the rest of it. But it is also transformational in a way that no amount of Instagram stories is, is ever going to get you there. So the, well, I'll say one more thing about that, that we've worked hard and, you know, some, some days feel more successful than others is how do we translate this into an easy way for people to understand? So one of our angles on that is, you know, last year we collected about five and a half million pairs of shoes and about that many pieces of apparel. We have, our operating budget is about seven million bucks. We say, look, typically one dollar equals one pair and it's close, you know, probably. Ernst and Young did the accounting on that. Maybe they'd be like, mm, we could do better. <laughs> so it gives people a way to understand like, hey, one dollar can help get shoes out to people, whether it's through micro enterprise. 
like they get that and they're like, okay, if I, if I donate $20 a month at the end of the year, I've helped 250 people get shoes. I feel good about that. And it's not a giant amount of money. So that's another way we do it is just make it tangible because talking about economic impact, I mean, you and I might be interested in that, but that is meaningless to most people. So <laughs> way that makes it tangible for, for anybody to say, Oh, okay. I get how I can help. That's what we want to be able to do. Hmm. I, I know that you've had a, a recent partnership with Foot Locker. Can you tell me? a little about that and just how that transpired? Sure. We had done some work with Foot Locker in the past through the Foot Locker Foundation, particularly around hurricane disaster relief in Puerto Rico in 2018 after Irma, Harvey, and Maria. And so we had a, they had a great experience. They liked how we worked with uh, with their team here and the folks on the ground, and they, they traveled with us there to see that. Then, but at the beginning of COVID, one of our board members and you know, I know we're not really going to talk about here, but one of the big parts of the transformation of the last few years for Souls for Souls is to have rebuilt this board with incredibly connected, passionate people who also understand their job as stewards. Hmm. She knew somebody on the, on the Foot Locker board, kind of worked it through her to the board member to Dick Johnson, who's the CEO. And he and I know each other a little bit. And he said, yeah, let's have this conversation. So we talked to their marketing team and with super low expectations, right? Retail is shut down everywhere. The world's going to end. This is March. Nobody knows what's happening. And instead of saying, this is not the time for this conversation, they went the 180 degrees the other way and said, what could we do that is really meaningful? Wow. So as, as we've gotten focused on this program that we call For Every Kid, that is very, very important, I think, for us for the long term. And it, there's a million and a half kids every year in public schools who experience homelessness at some point. Like that is unimaginable. It is shameful. It's, it just breaks my heart when I think about what that means for so many people hmm. and how their parents feel about it as well. So like, okay, we're going to work on solving. Like we're going to figure out how to get to that million and a half kids. And Foot Locker said, we love this. So they donated $250,000 and 20,000 pairs of shoes, the 15 that we could use here in the U.S. and 5,000 around the world on this kind of work. Hmm. So how it transpired, look, it was kind of magic, <laughs> honestly. It, hmm. None of it seemed like it should have happened in the time that it did. But to go from that first conversation in March to them making this announcement in September is a pretty short amount of time, wow. given everything that's going on. Yeah, no kidding. They are in, right? They are in, and it, it's been an amazing thing. And I, I know, not just in the last few months, but especially in the last few months, capitalism has taken a lot of wax. You know, you see the surveys, a majority of the sort of millennial Gen Z crowd don't believe in capitalism anymore. Hmm. And yet what I see is I see how that works for people like Marianne mm -hmm. and the women we work with in Honduras or in a couple of countries in Africa. I see companies like Foot Locker using their corporate resources to have a direct impact in communities all across the U.S. And I'm thinking maybe but it's still the best system we got. And these are great. Foot Locker is a great example of how that works. And we have, thank God, lots of other corporate partners who think the same way. For, for people who perhaps haven't, haven't seen other government and economic structures, how detrimental they can be to society, it's, it's very easy to, to poke holes in, at, at, at what we have. It's not perfect by any means but the fact that it can it can provide opportunities for folks who who would have otherwise not had the opportunity to really express their economic value i mean it's it's very hard to argue with with a mariange you know story yeah <laughs> and my opinion is is the same as yours it, it's it's definitely the, the best system that, that we have. Not perfect, but it's it's the best system thus far that anybody has come up with. You know, uh, and, and most maybe you've had the same experience. And I know you travel and mm -hmm. you know have a have a global perspective. Go to a place where there's no rule. If you think the the problem with our our capitalism is there are too many rules, go to some place where there are no rules. There's no rule of law mm -hmm. and it's every person for themselves. You know, that whole like nature red in tooth and claw kind of thing. It is a disaster, right? Where corruption and lack of cooperation and instability are the rule. That's a terrible system. And we do a lot of work in, there's one country where we do a lot of work, uh, Moldova in Eastern Europe. 
And that is a, look, it's a Soviet style economy. They still, mm. just until last year, still used a hammer and sickle on their flag. Oh, wow. And it is, it is equally a train wreck. Like we wanted, one of the conversations we had with our partner there who was very successful is about helping maybe individuals get into the shoe business somehow. And he said, there's no way you have to pay a tax of $2,500 a month just to have a license to be able to do that. Wow. So he said, we can't do it here. Like it just, it won't work. And so, man, there are lots of things I'd love to think about it, how it works here in the U.S. But still, when I think about how many companies are doing the right thing, how many people in those companies want to do the right thing and use their resources for more than just enriching themselves, it is a pretty powerful testament to how it can work. Yeah, and I think more for-profit companies are realizing there's money to be made by being a responsible capitalist. Absolutely. And and so now granted there's a, there's obviously a very big moral obligation um but it's it's very it's very interesting this this shift that you're seeing where there's there's a lot more corporate responsibility. So I think that will that will continue. As a not-for-profit, your your whole mission is about changing lives, changing lives in the U.S., changing lives around the globe. Can you tell me how you approach and embrace change within your own organization? And how do you handle people who may be less enthusiastic about internal changes or or just maybe downright resistant? Yeah, look, we're still small. Right? We have about 70 employees. So at scale, this is way harder than what we're dealing with. And I, and I recognize that. But I think one of the most important things that we've done over the last eight years, and it's still, it's a part of what we talk about to each other all the time, is being super clear on our values. So hmm. it's about being transparent, entrepreneurial, accountable, and that, the, that it's meaningful. The work that we do is meaningful. And, you know, there are other values that, you, that we could have or should add, but when we use those to hire people, and so that they, they're super clear about what they're coming into. And we practice them, that we're transparent, that we aren't bureaucratic, that we really think about how we do things from an entrepreneurial perspective. We hold each other accountable and that it is meaningful to us and those that we serve and work with. That's a pretty good way to surface the change and figure out, is it consistent with our values? And are we doing things that are in the pursuit of our strategic plan and our long-term goal of ability? So we have these pretty stable guardrails to help us know, are we doing things the right way for the right reasons? And that, I have to say, has been, I guess that's sort of cliche to say values and plans, but it's what allows us to have the right kind of conversations, right? Because there's mm. not politics, there's not very much politics, um, and we're super clear about what the mission is. Mm. And I think those things have allowed us to change a lot in the last eight years, that's all I can speak to. In a way that, you know, again, on all those metrics, our, our board, our financial health, our impact, and our team, they are dramatically better than they were eight years ago. And I think the values underpin all of that. Wow. That, that, that brings to mind a company like Tractor Supply, where they are, they are all about their, their values. I, I think that's, that's a, that's a really good approach from the get go to ensure People are, are aligned on the values and then filter that, whatever change, filter that through the values and, and just ensure it it's going to be aligned. That's great. How have you been able to support your organization through COVID and the racial turmoil that's happening and just all of this 2020 stuff that is going on? What does that look like for your organization? How have you been able to support them? I'll, I'll add one component and then address this. It's sure. totally unique to Souls for Souls is uh, at the beginning of 2020, our COO, uh, I mean, a really close friend for many years and kind of my partner in a lot of what we've done at Souls for Souls, got diagnosed for the second time with cancer. Oh, he got really sick and he died in May. Oh, so in addition to all of this, we and his wife works with us. She was the first employee at Souls for Souls. Wow. So we're going through this. In, in, intensely personal, devastating thing with David and Patty. Hmm. And we're trying to figure out all this other stuff. Wow. Yeah. Everybody's had a crazy 2020. That was, that was ours. And the, the thing that blows me away 
when I think about it, it's, it's hard not to get emotional, is how people came together. And so David was our COO and he was the, he drove the revenue side of our business, which is 70% of it. And he had all this stuff in his head and he had a great team and he had a great personality to, to drive things to get done. Hmm. Suddenly we don't have them in the most chaotic period we've ever been in. Everybody was totally willing to be open to doing things differently and didn't have to happen that way, right? Because we, we had a travel program that we shut down and we said travel's gone. Like that's not happening anytime soon. We have to redeploy the people in there to help us figure out how to do this other stuff that we now know needs done. And so we went from one guy, David, being really the one with his hands on the levers to we had a, a team of 10, 12 people making revenue decisions about where to move product and where should it go and who's most important to get the next thing. We did that as a group and we went from never having done that to one week later, that's how we ran the whole business. Hmm. So, so, so that's one component. And then the racial piece, uh, you know, has just made it more complicated. I think for us, like a lot of organizations, it's a wake up call and for two dimensions. We've been talking about this, particularly on our board, which is pretty white. That, like, guys, this is, this is not representative of, of the world. And this is, we're probably losing a lot of the right perspectives that we should have at the table. So mm. it did been on the agenda. It got mm. way more on the agenda. Mm. But I think the other thing, once you that has, uh, that we kind of gave ourselves a pass for is because of, of who we serve, right? Whether it's in the U.S. Or around the world, it is a lot of, even though we're focused on poverty, it's a lot of black and brown people. And so I think, I'll speak for myself. Like we're kind of doing that. Like we're doing the right kind of work. We're helping, and we realize actually we're not. You know, we're we're maybe in those communities, but we're not really of those communities in, in the way that we have an opportunity to be. So I think it has really forced us to examine how do we have micro entrepreneurs, our direct micro enterprise partners, the, our local partners around the U.S. who are serving those communities every day. How do we make it's possible for them to have a voice in what we're doing. Might not be a decision-making role, might not be a governance role, but it could be that we are forced to listen better than we are about what the needs are and what's happening. Mm. I think that's going to be a, an important long-term change. And we're having this conversation internally. I mean, again, there's nothing unique about what we're doing. I think maybe most the most important thing is to broaden it from just racial diversity, which was kind of the, the lens that we had. Mm-hmm. To diversity means lots of things to diversity, equity, inclusion means even more things. And how are we, how do we think about all of that? Mm. Our board, our team and the sort of our clients, if you will. It's been hard to figure out how to do that and in what order. But I feel again, in the last four months, we've gone from, ah, it's kind of on the agenda to it is a board task force with 10 people involved in it. And so we did not. We didn't take the path of making a nice statement and not doing the work. We said, basically, let's keep our mouths shut. Let's put together a plan and then work the plan. That's how we'll make things happen. Hmm. kind of where we are. First, I want to extend my deepest condolences to you and the Souls for Souls team over the tragic loss of your COO, David, in the wake of everything else that's going on. And you saw that there might be a gap and, and you guys said, all right, let's, let's start closing that gap. Let's start doing something about it. Yeah. And I mean, lots of smarter people have said it better and, uh, you know, with more data and experience, but if we're not willing to commit to measurable outcomes, then it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know what those outcomes are yet that we're right in the middle of that, but we have all agreed, the board and the executive team and the whole organization, really, to say, we've got to come out here with stuff that we can track that we're doing differently. And that's the only way it's going to happen. What are some things that business and business leaders can learn from a nonprofit like yours? I, I love this question. I think this is such an interesting question because I've had experience in both worlds. So I think a lot of for-profit business leaders think not-for-profits are easy. You know, you don't have to make money, which is not true. That it's all kind of squishy. You feel good. <laughs> Maybe that's true. Some days that's not true. <laughs> and 
and, and, and a lot of like, hey, you should do things like we do. You should be more accountable. You should have a plan. You should, you know, you should, you should, you should do things like us. And there's a lot of, there is a lot of wisdom in that. I, I really, I really believe that social source is better for adopting some of that. But what I have found being on both sides and talking to people who have gone between the two, because the not-for-profit sector generally is much harder to know what the target is, this is a hell of a lot harder work. Hmm. A number like earnings per share or quarterly earnings, like you sort of got one number. Here, as I said a little bit about economic impact, you've got four or five things that you have to juggle every day. And you can't just say, well, that one doesn't matter today. They matter every day. So we just, we hired a new COO who started in October, in August, and he spent 25 years in the footwear business in wholesale footwear, which is a really tough business, right? It's not great margins. You're talking to big department stores who have a lot of power over you and everything you have to fight for. So he comes in. I don't think, I think we did a good job of explaining what it was going to be like, but he came in like, holy hell, this is really hard. <laughs> He was going to be this hard. <laughs> and so I think that the, the thing that the for-profit world could learn from is in the not-for-profit sector, you often don't have very much, quote, power, right? You're, you've got, you've got all these things that you're, it's much more consensus oriented. Like, you, and there is a tremendous amount of value in how do you lead others without coercion or authority or just power how do you bring them along hmm. and the for-profit leaders do that really well but in the not-for-profit world like that's about all you have hmm. so like you you know another example there's there is a tr- tremendous opportunity in the not-for-profit sector for mergers and acquisitions right there's too many of them they're too small competing over the same stuff it's dumb but there's no mechanism right i can't say well if i get it to this point I get this multiple, I put this much in my pocket, shareholders are happy, I'm happy, big win. Because it's all ego. I founded this thing, I'm not giving it up, I get to be the founder, I get to have a board to listen to me, you know, there are all these things that, and you get to do work you think is important. But there's no mechanism. It's easy to say, there should be more M&A in the not sector, I agree 100%, but you got no, all you have are carrots. And really different that's a really different world to be in, and there is a lot to learn from it. So I think good for-profit business leaders, when they serve on a not-for-profit board, as an example, instead of just saying, I'm going to go show those knuckleheads how it's done, there's a tremendous opportunity to say, what can I learn to take back to my organization about how we could do things differently using some of how that type of business has to manage. And so I, I see people do that a lot. And when I do, it's, it always kind of blows me away because it's that richness, that blend is really powerful. Can you expand a little bit about the, the type of leadership that's necessary in a not-for-profit? You mentioned that the power dynamics are just just different. And, and so how, how, do, how do you navigate that? Is, is this a, an inspiration type of leadership? Is this a persuasive? I mean, what, 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 do you, what do you do? What kind of levers do you utilize? So it's, it's different with the board than internally. So I'll talk about the board at first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, look, a lot of not-for-profit leaders think their boards are giant pain. It just like, takes time to manage them. They don't understand what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. If they would just get on my way, I could make it happen faster. <laughs> what that to me says is you've got a crappy board, right? Mm-hmm. Because my experience is as, we, as we've rebuilt this board over the last eight years, we have people who, like, I can't wait to talk to them and get their they don't always agree with them. They don't, certainly don't always agree with me, but the mutual respect and the commitment to what we're doing and their clear recognition that their job is to govern, not to manage is critical. And, and we just, we've built that kind of relationship where that line doesn't get crossed, mm. almost never gets crossed. And so by us being like, here's the plan. Here's how we execute on the plan. Here are the results. And people can trust us. The board can trust us. That's how you get there, right? It's better when the results are good, right? There's no question about that. But even, but there were three years at Souls for Souls when we didn't know if we were going to make it to the next payroll period. Hmm. Even in that environment where our board was much more like, and we were talking a lot, that's when we built that kind of respect of, hey, this is your expertise. This is my expertise. 
and let's do this together, not try to get in each other's way. And that culture now pays, has paid off. It paid off when we were growing and everything was great. And it's paid off in the last six months when it felt like the world was falling apart. Hmm. Wow. Internally, you know, it's not that different now that I think about it. I mean, you know, clearly there's an org chart and I'm the CEO, so I know where my place on org chart is. And I guess I could just say this, how things are going to be. And I, I would be quote, doing my job. Well, that is crap. <laughs> so experience is, I'll, I'll say it this way. I think there are a lot of times an outsider could come into our executive team meeting as an example. So there's the CEO, CFO, chief marketing officer, chief business development officer, and COO. Those, that's our executive team. I think there are times you could come into our meetings and you wouldn't know who the CEO is. Hmm. And nothing makes me happier, right? Where there is that kind of shared leadership and trust and God knows disagreement. That to me is a really high functioning team. It hmm. doesn't matter if it's for profit or not for profit. And we have a, a now a leadership team level of vice presidents that we're trying to do that same thing with them. We're stumbling, stumbling through that. But the idea is that this shared leadership is, I think, easier in a not-for-profit because of the clarity of the mission. And we know that we're serving other folks and it's not about what my bonus is or am I going to get promoted? All those kinds of things are secondary. So I think that is a big advantage that the not-for-profit sector can have. Mm-hmm. And then when we are sharing leadership, so I don't know if it's persuasive or exactly how to phrase it, but really thinking that there are a lot of people who know more and can make these decisions and how do we do that is a big focus for us. You outlined that really well, that kind of shared leadership model. I I had a conversation with the former CEO of Bridgestone America's Gary Garfield, and his leadership style was actually very similar to what you described. And prior to him going into Bridgestone, it was not like that. It, everybody was scared to to share their opinions and didn't want to dissent. And and he kind of turned that culture around. And and so that really echoed what what he said. And I think that's that's really just a good insight into what more organizations could if they want you know, high functioning teams at every level, what more organizations could adopt. Well, Gary is a Nashvillian. Yep. And I'm happy to be in any category <laughs> that includes him. That's good to know. He's a good guy. Yeah, he's he's a he's a really good guy. So I I wanted to to switch gears and get a little kind of levity. I saw your your TEDx talk and it was fantastic by the way for those who haven't seen it, go Google Buddy Teaster, you know, TEDx talk, really awesome. I noticed though, I noticed something. I noticed you have you have pretty pretty long locks. You gotta tell me about about those those long locks. That that is a bit unusual for a CEO. So so please tell me the story behind those. So you sound a little bit like my dad. <laughs> Why do you still have long hair after all this time? <laughs> uh. This is not one of these things like, oh, I never thought about it. Totally wrong. I had long hair a lot. There was a period where I was trying to be sort of more grown up and I had a short haircut and, and I hated it. I'm like, that's just not who I am. Hmm. There was a conscious point where I said, I never, I mean, I, I get my hair cut, but like, it's not going back to that. <laughs> so <laughs> we have two daughters who are now 23 and 18 and our youngest girl uh, was in high school here in Nashville. And she said, I am sick to death of my guy friends asking about your hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take that. If, if I can do anything that makes a high school boy think I'm cool, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, too funny. Uh, I said to her, like, you cannot let them. I don't want to meet them because I will totally blow that. Like, as soon as I start talking, I'll be like, oh, God, he's just an old geezer. But if I can keep him at arm's length, great. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's too funny. That is great. Can you tell me a little bit about what you enjoy doing in your, in your downtime, any hobbies or, or anything like that? The big one for me, Moshe, is running. Uh, I've been started running in 1988. My younger brother 
uh, had been a high school and college runner and got me into it finally. And I ran my first marathon in 94. I did my first ultra marathon in early 2000s. I did my hmm. first 100 miler in 2004, I think. Oh, geez. And so the ultra running in particular has just become, it's a big part of how I keep my sanity, how I stay in shape. It's how I know a lot of people. Some of my best friends, you know, have come through that, through running and that community. So other than, you know, reading and being with my family, running is probably one of the key cornerstones of, of my whole life. The more and longer I can be out in the woods, the better. Hmm. Wow. I've ran a couple times, you know, I've done a mile or two here and there, but you're talking about a hundred mile ultra marathon. How does, how does that happen? I mean, how, where, where do you get that thought process that, that says, well, this is a good idea? Well, <laughs> uh, that idea of being good, that goes away during the event. I can promise you. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did have a moment. So my brother, who is a far faster runner than I am, he and I trained really hard one year and I was going to try to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And like, I did everything I could. And I ran 320 and the qualifying time was 310 or something. So I wasn't even close. Hmm. Like I, okay, I, I can't run or faster or train harder than I have. So maybe I can run longer. Hmm. It was really that simple. I wasn't any like strategy to it. I'm like, well, maybe I could try this. So I ran my first 50K and it was a train wreck. I didn't, I didn't talk to anybody. I went out in road shoes and ran on the trail. I thought it was just like a marathon, but five miles longer. And it is not. And I almost quit running after that. I'm like, if, if this is what it's like, I'm out. <laughs> then I talked to a few people and they're like, oh man, you, you did every dumb thing <laughs> that you could do. Here, like learn. So they pointed me to some things. They talked to me about their experiences. I went back and did that same race a year later and I was hooked. So then I did 50, I did some 50Ks. I did a 50 miler and then I did a hundred miler and I, Look, there's no explaining it, right? There's all the objective things. It's painful. It takes a long time. It hurts. It is not always fun. All that is true. And yet there are few things more satisfying that I've personally accomplished than that. Wow. Uh, it's it not just being saying I've run 100 miles, but just look, I am, I peak at the middle of the pack. So I'm never going to win. I have been close to last and it is such a mental game that that's the part that I love. Like, how do, how do I not give in? How do I push through when it gets hard? How do I stay focused on the goal? What's my second and third goal if the first one doesn't work? <laughs> Stuff that goes on that has very little to do with can you cover a hundred miles in 30 or 48 hours or whatever it is. And that's the part that I love. And of course, a lot of these runs are in spectacularly beautiful places that, and I've seen things that I wouldn't get to see otherwise. And so all of that mm. comes together, you know, like I'm 56. I don't know how many hundred miles I've got left in me, if any at all, but I've been doing this long enough now that being outside for a long time on the trail is like, that's never going away in my life. And that's a, that brings a lot of satisfaction to me. Wow. That's, that's amazing. That is amazing. So I have, I have one. One last question here, and uh, and this one's this one's always always a doozy. All right, so <laughs> okay, if, if you could be any animal, what animal would you be, and why? Hmm. So I think the animal I would pick would probably be a wolf, and it, not because of whatever all that comes with about being a loner and all the rest of it. Maybe some of that's true. But the thing I love about wolves is it just ties to the running. They are out there mm. long time, cover lots of ground, no matter what, and they don't give up. Mm. Love that. You know, I've, I've only seen a few in my life and not close, which is probably good. <laughs> but the idea that these animals can, you know, cover 50 miles a day looking for food and there's something, and of course, they're mostly in spectacularly beautiful places. And there's a part of me that just loves that idea. That's awesome. 
That is really, really cool. I, I want to thank you. The The insights that you shared were were just, you know, just phenomenal. I think really appreciate you being a guest. I hope that, that we can we can chat again. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for clearly putting thought and time into the questions and, and making it such an easy conversation. It was a real pleasure. Souls for Souls mission is not just close to my heart. It's written on it. My mother was born in Panama and came to the U.S. when she was 16, adopted by U.S. citizens. The reason she came to this country? Her mother was shot and killed before her when she was just 12 years old. This tragedy was at the hands of the Panamanian government. During a protest of which my abuela, the abuela who I've never had the fortune to meet, was not even a participant. In the United States, my mom was pregnant by 18, knew little English and had been kicked out of her house by her adoptive parents for being pregnant, pregnant with me. She was on her own again, like she had been after her mother was prematurely taken from her. Luckily, she was in a country that gave her the economic opportunity to support her and her unborn son. I still remember as a kid, my mom telling me stories about how she grew up, how she lived in a condemned building with no indoor plumbing, how all they had was a community toilet and a community shower, and how she washed their clothes by hand in the nearby river. What some people may not realize is there are a lot of people in the world that still live in these conditions today. And it's important to give these people the economic opportunity to live a better life. And this is what Souls for Souls helps do every day. But it's not just the not-for-profits that are making a difference. Businesses who have a conscious capitalist type of value system are also key to helping people across the world and right here in our own backyards.